thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, have you ever, ever had a really great week? I hope each one of you can say at least that some week in your life was great. But I want you to think about what was maybe for you the, the greatest week in your life. For those of you who are married, perhaps uh, it was the week of your honeymoon. Uh, I know Jenny and I were blessed. Someone gave us uh, their timeshare in Maui, and so we got to go to Maui for our honeymoon. And so uh, that was just an amazing week. Or uh, maybe for those of you who have kids, the, the greatest week of your life was that time where you're in the hospital and uh, you hold your first baby for the first time, and uh, that experience of having that child, uh, just uh, such a wonderful thing. Or or for those of you in school right now, maybe the greatest week of your life was the fact that you passed all of your final exams and you graduated from school, and uh, there's just that uh, great feeling of satisfaction uh, when you do that. Or perhaps, you know, for those of you who've been on a mission trip, maybe the greatest week of your life is just being out serving the Lord and the work that he did in and through you uh, in another country, ministering to people. Or uh, for those of you maybe who've had the blessing of going to Israel, uh, just having a week there in the Holy Land, maybe that's what you consider uh, the best week of your life. But, you know, the reality is whatever week it is, the, the reason that we consider it the best week of our life is because we have received some kind of great benefit from that week. Something wonderful happened. And so we say, well, of all the weeks in my life, this is the one that I determined to be the greatest, whether it's because I got married or the benefit of children or graduating or being used by God, but I want you to recognize that really the greatest week in human history, the week that actually we benefit from the most, is the week that we are celebrating starting today, ending next Sunday. It's the week that starts with the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, continues to the day that he gives his life on the cross for the sins of the world, and concludes as he rises from the dead to conquer sin and death. You know, we're going to be celebrating this great week of human history starting this morning, and we're going to focus on the triumphal entry. Friday, we're going to be focusing on uh, Jesus' death on the cross for our sin, and then next Sunday, Easter Sunday, we'll be focusing on Jesus' resurrection. And so as we start this morning and we see the triumphal entry of Jesus, we're going to focus on four main things that we're told in the Gospels about the triumphal entry. First, we're going to see how Jesus orchestrated how and when this would all transpire. Second, we're going to see how the triumphal entry of Jesus was very different. Many people at that time would have not considered this triumphal at all, and definitely the Jews were not expecting this kind of triumphal entry of Jesus. Third, we're going to look at two different responses that two different groups of people have to the triumphal entry of Jesus. And then fourth and finally, we're going to see Jesus' response specifically to the Jews that have rejected him. We're going to mainly be using Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel as we look at what we're told here about the triumphal entry. So let's start with something that Luke reveals to us in chapter 19, verses 28 through 35. He says this, 
When he had said this, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. So Jesus and his disciples, now they're getting very close to Jerusalem. The two towns right next to Jerusalem are uh, Bethpage and, and Bethany. And so they're about to enter Jerusalem. But before they do, Jesus pulls aside two of his disciples and he gives them a mission that he wants them to accomplish. He tells them, hey, guys, in the next village, you're going to find a colt or a young donkey. It's going to be tied up and I want you to go take it. And if the owner says, why are you stealing my donkey? Then you need to tell them the Lord has need of it. And so they're probably thinking, this is kind of weird, but okay. And, and so they go and they do what Jesus says and they bring the donkey back and Jesus gets on the donkey and he's now ready to ride in to Jerusalem. So something I want you to, to understand as we start this is Jesus is the one who is orchestrating all the events here surrounding the triumphal Entry. He's the one orchestrating when he's going to enter and also how he's going to enter by riding on this donkey. Notice he sends these disciples to get this donkey, so he's orchestrating that, but he also had to move in the owner of this donkey's heart for this guy to be willing to allow his donkey to go, because in that time, donkeys were expensive. You know, they were valuable. It's kind of like your vehicle today. How would you feel if you walk outside, you see two guys breaking into your vehicle, ready to steal it, and you're saying, hey, what are you doing? And they say, the Lord is need of it. I mean, are you going to be like, okay, well, fine, go ahead, take it. I mean, the reality is, unless God had moved in you, you wouldn't be thinking, you can have my my car, just like this guy wouldn't be saying, you can have my donkey. So Jesus orchestrates it in the fact that he sends his disciples. He works in this guy's heart. And so the donkey is brought to Jesus. uh, And now he's able to do what he wants to do, as in riding in on a donkey. But he's also orchestrating the when. The specific day that he rides in is actually AD, uh, April 6, AD 33. And so Jesus has brought all of these things together. Now, the fact that Jesus is orchestrating the how and the when of when he's going to enter Jerusalem, after the fact that he knows when it happens, people are going to declare me as the Messiah. They're going to declare me as the King of the Jews. Now, this is very interesting because if you note through the Gospels, there are many instances where crowds want to make Jesus their king, where people are wanting to declare him as the Messiah, and every single time he avoids it. Every single time he walks away from it. Remember, he feeds the 5,000, and they think, man, you're really good to have around. Free food all the time, and so we want to make you our king. And Jesus says, let's get in a boat, let's get out of here. He's always avoiding that. He's not allowing himself to be in that position, but now all of a sudden, he is. If you even think about this, the the demons knew who he was, and often the demons speaking through an individual would be saying, Jesus, you're the son of God, and he would silence them, because there was a timing in which Jesus knew it's not time yet for me to be declared as the king, for me to be declared as the Messiah. It's still in the future. And so he would put it off. He would, he would keep people from doing it. But now it's come to the specific time when it's 
God's ordained time for Jesus to be declared as the King, as the Messiah. And so he's orchestrating all of this for this particular day where not only is he allowing himself to be praised, as he didn't do some other times in the past, but he's actually orchestrating it all to bring it together. He picks the time, which is the beginning of Passover week, which is a very significant week because now Jerusalem would have quadrupled in size. There'd be millions of people there and they would be expecting the Messiah. That was something in the Passover week that there was a greater expectation of the Messiah. He picks the place. He's entering into the eastern gate leading into the city and he picks the way. He's going to come in riding on a donkey. Now, I think it's important to recognize that as Jesus chooses this particular day, April 6, AD 33, well, well, why? Why is this so important? Why not April 7th? Why not another day? Why pick this particular day? Well, it's because this is the particular day that God not only ordained, but also prophesied long before Jesus ever was a baby born in Bethlehem. In Daniel chapter 9, we see a very specific prophecy. You know, oftentimes when we think of prophecy, God predicting the future, oh, it's just vague in general. Uh, Some prophecies are more vague. This is one that is extremely specific. And it's a prophecy about when the Messiah would triumphantly enter into Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26 says this, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself." Of all the prophecies in Scripture, this is one of my favorites, and we really don't have time this morning to get into all the details about it. It's a a great one. So I just kind of want to summarize it for you, help you understand how specific it is to reveal to us when Jesus would enter Jerusalem. And so we're told that there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So the first thing you have to understand about this prophecy is this Hebrew word translated weeks uh, more literally would be translated a period of seven. Now, this could be seven days or seven years. Uh, within this prophecy, it's speaking of seven years. So whenever you hear the word weeks, uh, it's speaking of a, a period of seven years. And so um, Daniel gives us basically a math equation that if you can work out the math equation, you can know the specific day that Jesus would come into Jerusalem. And so he starts this math equation. He says um, it's going to start with restoring and rebuilding of Jerusalem. Now, in uh, the book of Nehemiah, uh, we know from Nehemiah when that specific date is, King Artaxerxes, on March 14th, 444 BC, he commands Nehemiah, gives him the opportunity to go restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So that's the starting point. That's the the starting date. Uh, And we're told that from March 14th, uh, 444 BC, that there are seven weeks or seven seven seven-year periods. So for you math people, seven times seven is 
49. Uh, so seven seven-year periods is 49 years. Well, that's very interesting because Nehemiah tells us it took exactly 49 years for Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem as they went in there. So he says there's going to be this first section, the seven seven-year periods, or 49 years, something's going to happen, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which we told scripturally is exactly how long it took. But then after that span of time, we're told that there's going to be seven 49-year um, or sorry, yeah, seven, or four, no, sorry, 62-year uh, period. So if you multiply 62 times seven, you get 434 years. You can be getting out your calculator if you want to check that. But um, So you have 49 to start, and then you have 434 after it. When you combine those two numbers together, you have 483 years. Now, I don't want you to lose me with all these math things. Just remember this 483 years because after that, Daniel says something amazing is going to take place. The Messiah is going to show up and he's going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. And so here's where this prophecy gets quite amazing. As soon as that decree is given to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, we start counting the days. March 14th, 444 BC, King Artaxerxes, he gives this command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. At that point, we're starting to count the days of this prophecy. Now, something that's very important to keep in mind is that prophetic years in the Bible follow the Jewish calendar, which makes sense, as opposed to our calendar today. Our calendar today has 365 days a year. The Jewish calendar had 360 days a year. Uh, And so using the Jewish calendar, you take 483 years, you times it by 360 days, you get 173,880 days. Now, if you do the calculation, 173,880 days, we have the starting point. March 14th, 444 B.C., you count all those days, it leads you to April 6, A.D. 33, the exact day that Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. This is an amazing thing. Like I said, I would love to go into more detail and and what Nehemiah speaks about and what Daniel speaks about. But the reality is this prophecy reveals exactly when the Messiah would come. And that's why when Jesus speaks to the religious leaders saying, you should have known the day of your visitation, he's speaking of Daniel, like, you should have known the actual day I was going to come because I prophesied in my word and revealed that to you. And so Jesus is coming on this particular day, not just because he says, oh, this is a good day. This is a God-ordained day. This is something that was prophesied in scripture, and this is the specific day that God had designed for Jesus to show up and present himself as the Messiah to be received by the people. But we also note, not only did he orchestrate when, but he also orchestrates how. I mean, if you were Jesus and you had any opportunity of how you want to come in as the king, the Messiah, you know, how are you going to do it? Well, Jesus decides to do it riding on a donkey. You think, a donkey? I mean, that'd be the last animal I want to ride on and come in and, and declare myself as king. But once again... This is something not only that God ordained, but he prophesied long before Jesus was ever born in Bethlehem. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. God said this is how he's going to come. Be ready for it. When he comes, he's going to come lowly, riding on a donkey. 
Now, this prophecy was given 550 years before Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem, something that God was preparing the nation of Israel for. And so Jesus comes. He comes in this humble way, this low way, riding on a donkey. And and why that's significant is because during the time of Jesus, as Rome occupied that land, triumphal entries were very common. And the main people who had triumphal entries were Roman generals. And when they would conquer their people, like Israel and other nations around there, the Roman generals would have this huge ceremony, and they would have all these things going on. And they would ride not on a donkey, but a horse of war. Uh, And they would come in and they would declare themselves as these conquering heroes. And at the end of the ceremony, you would have slaves uh, of the people that they conquered. And usually many of them were put to death uh, to show Rome's power and might. And so triumphal entries were associated with a man who conquered another nation. And so, you know, if you were to come to a Roman and say, oh, Jesus is triumphal entry, they're like uh, a Galilean riding on a donkey coming into Jerusalem is not a conquering triumphal entry. Who did he conquer? Who did he beat? Who did he destroy? What nation did he rule over? Where's his war horse? For them, triumphal entry and what Jesus did would not go hand in hand. But something interesting in that day is a man who rode a donkey and coming into a city like that, it represented not only a lowly thing, but a man coming to bring peace, not war. Someone riding on the war horse was declaring, we made war, we conquer. The the donkey was a symbol of something coming to make peace. And I find that very interesting because Jesus didn't come to make war with mankind the first time he came. He came to make peace with mankind. He came to make it possible for man to have a relationship with God because we are at war with God because of our sin. And Jesus came to make it possible to not only to no longer be enemies of God, but to be God's children, to bring peace Our sin separates us from God. Our sin brings this problem in our relationship with God. And God wants peace. He wants to bring peace. And his uh, ability to do that was to send his son to pay for the thing that keeps us from having peace, which is our sin. When Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins, it made it possible for us to not only uh, avoid the punishment of our sin that we deserve, but to now have a relationship of peace with God, And so he enables us to go from God's enemy to God's children. And he says, all we need to do is ultimately accept Christ for that to happen. So Jesus, when he came the first time, he came as the peaceful king riding on a donkey to bring peace between God and man. But something else important to understand is that when Jesus comes again, he's not going to come on a donkey. He's going to come on a horse of war. He's not going to come to make peace. He's going to come to destroy his enemies. You see, what we see with the Roman conquering kings and the Roman conquering generals, Jesus is ultimately going to come like that the second time. Revelation chapter 19 reveals how Jesus will come when he returns the next time. Verse 11 says this, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. 
And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords." Revelation paints a very fierce picture of Jesus' return. Not lowly riding on a donkey to make peace between God and man, but to come and deal with those who are God's enemies, to come and battle those who would reject God and want to fight against God. And so when Jesus returns, it's going to be very different. It's going to be the kind of triumphal entry that the Romans would accept as triumphal as he comes on his horse of war to defeat those who would be against God. So Jesus came at his first coming to bring peace, and the second coming, he's going to bring his wrath to deal with those who reject God. Now, for the Jews of Jesus' day, if they knew their Bibles, they would recognize how Jesus would come, but that was one of their problems, especially the religious leaders. Jesus rebuked them often because they didn't know the Scriptures the way that they should. They weren't expecting the lowly, humble Messiah to come. What they were expecting is what we just read. They wanted the conquering king. They wanted someone who would overthrow the Roman government. As they saw Rome do the parade when they conquered them, they just couldn't wait till their own Messiah could do that to Rome and overthrow Rome and get them back to being a superpower. They were looking for that. The disciples of Jesus, when they thought, oh, we're going to be great in your kingdom, they were expecting Jesus to establish an earthly kingdom that overthrew Rome. And so that's what people were expecting Jesus to come. And so this wasn't triumphal to them. This is what wasn't what they were were expecting. They wanted someone who would come and destroy the Roman government. They were looking for the Messiah to deliver them from Rome, but Jesus brought them what they needed, which was a Messiah who would deliver them from their sins. They wanted to be physically saved, but what they needed was to be spiritually saved. So for the Romans of that time, and for many of the Jews of that time, they wouldn't title this entry triumphal, But as we know now, this is a great triumphal entry of God because it's because of this that we are now rescued and saved from our sins because of what God did for us, not only on this day, but following up on the cross and then the resurrection. So first we see how Jesus orchestrates how and when this triumphal entry takes place. Second, we see that this wasn't really triumphal in the eyes of the Romans, and it wasn't what the Jews were expecting. And so now we're going to see, well, how did the people who were there that day in Jerusalem respond as Jesus comes riding in on a donkey? Well, there's two different responses, one that's a positive response, one that's a negative response. So let's start with the positive response, which we see in both Luke and Mark's gospel, and we'll see how the people responded. In Luke 19, verse 36, it says, and as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Mark 11, 7 through 10. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their clothes on it and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the ground, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so as Jesus now, he's riding on this donkey, he's entering into Jerusalem, he's coming down the Mount of Olives, he's now going to come into the Eastern Gate, there's this huge crowd of people, and within this crowd, there are those that receive Jesus, and they receive Jesus in two different ways. The first way they receive Jesus is they spread not only their clothes, but also these branches, Uh, that's why we call it Palm Sunday, because most likely, especially in Israel, the branches they were using were palm branches. And so they lay this out on the road, kind of like a, a red carpet. You know, we're, we're welcoming the king. He's, he's important, and, and we want to do this for him. But something I want you to think about is, you know, if we had someone marching, you know, down the road, and he was on a donkey, and there's a lot of people, and we were to lay some of our clothes in front of him, that probably wouldn't be that big of a deal, because we have pretty big wardrobes of clothes, and if it gets trampled by a donkey, so what? You know, I'll just grab another shirt. But in Jesus' day... Most people only had one outer garment, and then they would have several inner garments that would, you know, they could change out and wash. But, you know, garments then were quite expensive. And so unless you were very wealthy, which the majority of this crowd probably were not, to lay their garment down was a pretty big sacrifice. To allow it to be trampled by a donkey and and these people, you know, it was a personal sacrifice to them to say, you know what, we're willing to do this because you're so important. We're willing to do this to declare you as the king and as the Messiah. And so the first response they have is a response of personal sacrifice, which also we see a second response where they're rejoicing. They're praising God for who he is. And notice what we're told. They say, Hosanna. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. The word Hosanna means save now. And this is something that, especially in that time, they were so desperate to be saved. Not the way that they needed, but from Rome. Oh, we want the Messiah to come and save us now from these Romans. And they wanted that so desperately. And what they're ultimately doing here is they're not just praising God randomly. What comes to mind? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're actually quoting a particular psalm that was a messianic psalm, meaning it speaks about the Messiah. The psalm that they're quoting is Psalm 118, 25 and 26. The psalm says, save now or Hosanna. I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So they're, really, they're quoting this psalm. This was a very familiar psalm because it was something that they were waiting for. We're waiting for this psalm to come true. We're waiting for the Messiah to come and to save us. And now they are saying, Jesus, you are the Messiah. And declaring this psalm and saying that about him and his triumphal entry, they are declaring, you are the Messiah, you are the king, you are the one that we want to save us. And so they're recognizing that. They, they, they first have this personal sacrifice of laying down their clothes. Second, they're verbally expressing that you are our Messiah, we want you to save us. Now, I want you to picture this scene because it would have been a huge crowd that would have been there at the beginning of Passover, much larger than any other time in the year uh, there in Jerusalem. All the different Jews from different parts of the world would come for the Passover. And of course, who's on the scene? The religious leaders. 
And we know from the Gospels that religious leaders do not like Jesus. They do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so now imagine, because every time before this, that people would try to say, Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the King. He wouldn't allow it. He would move away. But now, not only is he receiving it, he orchestrated it. And the religious leaders are not going to respond well to this. Notice what Luke 19 says, starting in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So as the Pharisees are there and they hear what's happening, they hear this psalm, they recognize what's being said, the people are declaring Jesus as the Messiah, and they think, blasphemy, he's no Messiah, he's not our king, he's not God, he's not our Savior. Teacher, rebuke them. How dare they say such things? And Jesus responds to them. I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. This was the day that God ordained that he would come into Jerusalem and that he would be praised and that people would declare who he was. And if people would keep silent, the stones would cry out. On a side note, this is an interesting thing that we see from Scripture. Roman tells us that creation groans. Isaiah speaks about uh, trees clapping their hands. There's a reality that creation is waiting for God to redo earth because it was perfect in the garden, and sin did not only destroy man, it destroyed creation as a whole, and it's waiting to get back to that place that God initially designed it to be. And so creation's willing to praise. Sadly, the ones who are often not willing to praise are people. And we see these religious leaders. They don't want to declare Jesus for who he is. They don't want to believe that Jesus is. And they want to discourage other people from publicly celebrating him as Messiah. These are the two responses, main responses that we have to Jesus today. This is what we see. We see people who are willing to receive him, to believe in him, to accept that he is the king, to accept that he is the savior, and they want to declare that they're willing to sacrifice for him, they're willing to receive him into their life. And there's also those who reject that, those who do not want to declare Jesus as their king. And I think a great question for us is, how have you chose to respond to who Jesus is and what he's done? He is God. What he's done is he sacrificed himself on the cross for our sin, and he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And he did that so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that we could have peace with God, so that we could have a relationship with God. And the Bible tells us in order for us to have that relationship, we have to make a choice. We have to choose to accept what Jesus has done. We have to choose to accept that he is God, to accept that he died on the cross for our sins, to accept that through his resurrection, not only did he prove that he was God, but he conquered sin and death so that we could have a relationship with him. We have to make that choice to believe in that. You see, Jesus wants a relationship with you. But he's saying, you know what? I've done everything on my part. I'm not going to force you to believe in me. I'm not going to force you to have a relationship with me. That is something that you're going to have to make a choice to do. You're going to have to choose to believe in me. You're going to have to choose to accept me. And if you choose to reject me, I've given you free will. I've given you that 
ability to make that choice, but I love you, and I died for you, and I did everything to make it possible for you and I to be reconciled, for your sin to be dealt with, for us to have a relationship, but he leaves it with us. His part's done. Now it's you. You have an opportunity to accept him or reject him. The question is, how are we going to respond? Like the portion of the crowd who received Jesus and praised him for who he was, or the portion of the crowd who rejected him and rebuked others for believing in him. For those of us who have received Jesus, something I want us to ponder is how do you feel towards those who haven't? What is your attitude and mindset towards the lost world who still has is rejecting Jesus, who still doesn't believe in him, who still wants nothing to do with him? How do you feel towards them? And as you ponder that, we're going to finish this morning looking at Jesus' response, how he felt towards those who rejected him, and hopefully we have the heart of Jesus towards those who were lost. Luke 19, verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Notice Jesus' response. He's been rejected by a good portion of the Jewish people that he came and he gave his life for, about to give his life for. And we see him weeping over the city of Jerusalem. This Greek word translated weep means to wail, to lament. It's speaking of great sadness. Jesus was greatly saddened by those that rejected him, but it wasn't a sadness that was selfish of, oh, I feel so rejected by you. It wasn't a sadness of, because of your rejection and because of your sin, I have to go to the cross. The ultimate sadness was, I'm sad because of the judgment that's coming upon you. You see, Jesus loves us, and what saddens him is the fact that our rejection of him brings judgment, God's judgment. Jesus is specifically speaking about a judgment that was physical in their day, 70 AD. Titus was going to come and wipe out Jerusalem, and Jesus is speaking about that. But there's a greater judgment that's going to come, the judgment of hell. The judgment for those who have rejected Jesus Christ is going to be an eternal judgment. And that's ultimately what causes God to weep. He weeps that we reject him because, one, we can't have that relationship with him. But he also weeps because of the reality of the consequences of that decision to reject God. You know, when you see this lost world that's rejecting Jesus, how does it cause you to respond? Are you saddened as you look around, as you think about the judgment that's coming upon people who don't know Christ? Are you moved to tears? Or have you become hardened? Do you look around and just kind of think, you know what, this world is just so messed up and they're getting what they deserved and and we're kind of just hardened to the reality of how lost they are and the consequences of their lifestyle and their choice to reject Christ. An inner city church had just received a new pastor. 
One of the elders came to welcome him, and as he comes to this pastor's new office, he sees the pastor looking out the window, and he's just weeping because of how messed up this inner city is. And wanting to console the pastor, the elder says, don't worry. After you've been here a while, you'll get used to the tragic condition of this inner city. The pastor responded, yes, I know. That's why I'm crying. You see, it's so sad so often that we get to that place where we just see the sin and the depravity of the world around us that it's like we're just used to it and it doesn't move us anymore. You know, when I was in Scotland, we would have uh, regular teams come and do mission trips, and it was a couple years in, and I remember, you know, Glasgow, where the city that we ministered in, was a pretty messed up place. It was the uh, murder capital of Europe, uh, highest abuse of heroinism, alcohol, uh, drug abuse. I mean, it was a pretty messed up place. And when I first got there, just going and seeing where the people were and what they were doing, how lost they were, I was so moved. And you know what? I didn't even realize how I started to slowly become hardened. And this team was there, and there was this guy on the team, and we were ministering all day, and afterwards we get together and we're praying, and he's crying, and he's just sharing how just, man, these people are just so lost, and they're so messed up. And God was hitting me then of, you've lost this. You're starting to get so hardened. Every day you see this, and every day it's a a little bit harder, and and you don't have the same compassion that you used to. You don't have the same uh, heart and love for these people. And I had to pray for God to really change my heart and give me his heart again, because I think it's easy for us in the midst of a culture that is very anti-God to just start getting hardened and to start thinking, you know what, they just deserve it. I mean, look at these things that they're doing, and, and instead of recognizing, man, they just don't know Jesus. They're sinful people. We should expect them to be sinful. The only thing that's going to solve the problem is if they come to know Christ. And if they don't, there is an eternal punishment for them. And that in itself should move us with compassion. But so often as believers, we're not like Jesus was. We're not weeping over the city. We've kind of getting hardened. And you know what? When we get hardened, we don't really reach out as much. When we're hardened, we don't really care as much. When you're weeping and you're moved with compassion and love, there's a desire to reach those people with the one true message that can change their lives, the gospel. Jesus demonstrates that. And I would encourage you, if you feel like, you know what, here in Pasadena, the surrounding areas, Houston itself, I mean, we live in a pretty messed up place. There's a lot of sinful people, a lot of very anti-Jesus, anti-God And it can be easy to get hardened. It can be easy to lose focus on what is eternal and the reality that these people need Christ. And so if you found that your compassion is leaving and you're getting more hardened, I I encourage you to pray. God changed my heart to the people in Scotland. I'm confident he can change your heart to the people here. The Bible tells us that God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's ask God to give us that heart. That heart that desires none to perish. That heart that weeps over people who don't know Jesus. The greatest week in human history started with the triumphal entry. But what made it truly great is what's coming. The fact that Jesus was willing to sacrifice himself on the cross for us and then rise from the dead to conquer sin and death. That's the greatest week in human history, but you know what? It does nothing for you if you don't accept it. 
What Jesus did in that week does nothing for you, does nothing for me, if we don't choose to accept who Jesus is and what he's done. And you know what? The greatest day in your personal history of your life will be the day that you choose to accept Jesus, the day that your sins are forgiven, the day that you now can have a relationship with God. Of all the days in my life, that is definitely the most significant day, the most important day, the day I was lost and then I was found, the day I was blind and then it came to the knowledge of the truth of who Jesus is. And that is something that Jesus has made available for everyone. Everyone can have that relationship. It's a choice you have to make to believe that Jesus is God, to believe that he died on the cross for your sin, to believe that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death, and to ask him to forgive you of your sin. Let's pray.